Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Two recent suicides by Parkland survivors speaks volumes about the residual trauma a community can feel after mass shooter, shooter events. Several Muslim counselors from Chicago and Milwaukee recently returned from Christchurch, New Zealand. They did an assessment there to help survivors of the mosque shooting and kind of check out what they kind of quality care they were receiving. And it led to some serious reflection on the global epidemic of hate crime, suffering, and fear. With me now is Heidi Azur. She's a mental health therapist who specializes in trauma. She's originally from Syria. Hadia works with many people in the Syrian refugee community here and abroad. Thanks a lot for joining me, Hadia. Thank you for having me, Jerome. Also with me is Sana um, Mohed. Muhyiddin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's a family counselor and therapist with Rise Youth Family Services. They focus on inner city youth in criminal justice systems in the in the Milwaukee area. Her family is originally from Pakistan, and her Urdu skills came in handy on the trip. Great to see you, Sana. Thank you. And also with me is Donna Demir. She's a health advisor at the Zakat Foundation, and she's a registered nurse. And the Zakat Foundation is a global relief and development organization, and they underwrote the trip to New Zealand. Great to see you, Donna. Thank you. I wonder if you could tell me how you decided to do this trip and how you came to do this trip. Um, Sana, do you want to take that one? Sure, sure. We were obviously um, very affected when we heard the news about what happened in New Zealand, and this was within the Muslim community and worldwide as well. Uh, we were fortunate to have friendship within the leadership at New- in New Zealand, and we reached out and offered our services, and it was actually accepted. So that was how we managed to get in touch with people there. Um, but we we didn't, of course, we want the leaders there to remain, you know, in charge. But what we saw was that they actually lost uh, a good amount of their leadership in the shooting. So there was just, you know, a crisis in terms of of, of scrambling to get services and getting help. And so we just kind of stepped in um, to help in that way. <clears throat> but we went to just be supportive on every level. And, you know, when you think about um, what happens, people always say the number of people who died in the incident. But there were 72 orphans, um, 41 widows. Mm-hmm. When you kind of count up the volume <laughs> of people who are affected by this and, and who are going to be affected by a by it for years now. Yeah. It's it's an it. There's an epic thing going on. Um, what what do you see when you're there, Hadia? What do you what do you find? People were struggling with the different um, with different like symptoms. Um, the whole community is in shock. Uh, it's a smaller community, and their the connection between them is strong. And I'm uh, we're hoping that this will help them in healing, um, since, like on a community level, on, on a bigger level. Um, a lot of trauma symptoms, like people are having um, nightmares. People are feeling the, this um, anger and extreme sadness. Um, survivor's guilt survivor's guilt Mm -hmm. yeah for many of them like Mm -hmm. why me I wasn't there I was supposed to be there why why my husband not me Um, uh, and that also will affect the kids who are who e- either like were there at the mosque or who who have been listening to um, their uh, mothers talking about what happened so it's, now, it's now a did huge the, loss did the children get counseling services um, 
to to my knowledge um they didn't um uh, it's um, you know it, it, i mean when we think about like mental health services we always think about the stigma and how how comfortable people are to talk about their feelings uh, so this is the first layer that we we see everywhere i see it here in my work uh, the stigma is huge and then the other thing is like how how do you understand the healthcare system um this is also i i see it here so and and the the, the third layer is the, the the cultural piece of how am i comfortable enough to talk to someone who doesn't share the same culture or share the same experience about what happens um so with the kids unfortunately um, what we try to do is to educate the mothers and some community members of how to respond to their um, uh, behaviors and what's normal and what's not normal when it comes to certain behaviors um dana what is how is the new zealand health system set up in in your mind from what you saw how does it work with the survivors well it's it's it was um interesting for us to find that it's set up slightly different than than what we see here in the united states uh in terms of uh what one would have to what what is required of one to be able to get mental health services it's a little more difficult to get mental health services there than it is here for us, which I guess in some ways we kind of sort of take for granted. Um, so uh, so our goal when we went there was was really to provide what turned out to be psychoeducation on a, on a very large scale. It's very difficult to get mental health services there unless you're in the middle of a crisis or uh, just about to have a crisis. Mm-hmm. And I imagine, I mean, this is a country uh, that is small. It's uh, like 5 million people in right. New Zealand. And the number of <laughs> mental health professionals who can speak different languages right. is probably but, kind yeah. of limited. It was, right. I mean, that was, that, that, was, that was why I believe our team was so effective because we have Hadia, who is English and Arabic speaking. We have Sana, who is also English and uh, Urdu speaking. Um, and very well in in their discipline, they're very well trained in their discipline. Uh, so that was why we, when we got the opportunity and we were accepted, we we really wanted to go right away uh, to see what we could see what we could do, and just to just to simply provide some type of uh, mental, emotional uh, support, like Hadia said, in in every way. Now, um, what is it like for uh, to be there in this space that uh, has been? <coughs> violated like this. These are people who continue to go to the mosques mm-hmm. and um, it was very overwhelming. be in the mosques. Yeah. Was, we were so surprised to see that a lot of people, maybe not all, were able to go back pretty fast to the mosque. Um, but for us being there as, as outsiders, it was I was surprised how overwhelming it was. Um, just knowing what happened there and knowing what happened to these people, it was it was difficult. And there's armed guards outside the mosque yes. now? Always. Yes. Um, one thing that we found, and I think this would be true in any given situation, even if we're here at home, um, we really couldn't grasp the we, – we couldn't grasp very much being so far away. To, to be in the space and see how small the space was, we all responded differently, the three of us. Uh, for me, to be in the space and see how small it was and uh, just know what happened there, how this massacre happened there. And um, I, I was, for, for me, that was my visceral response, was how small this space was. It really, really was. Uh, 
And I, I found that very, very difficult to take it all in. And, and we're trained professionals at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So um, what do you – how do you equate this with what's happening all over the world? I mean we've got a global – epidemic of mass shooter events and you're you see <clears throat> this kind of circumstance with this massive amount of uh trauma uh how do you make sense of that how do you i mean i think it's it's very important to take um uh, threatens and hate speech seriously when we think about the effect that those attacks are are uh, are doing to people it's uh, we when i think about it like on all, all levels like i i, I worry uh, for those children how are they going to live uh, how are they going to grow up in this community and uh, the level of fear uh, or like what kind of what s- sense of safety they're going to have uh, so when we think about those incidents happening all over it's 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 really scary and i and i that's why we're trying to um, um, advocate and keep uh, this conversation going about how how do we prevent that what do we need to pay attention to before we get something tragic like this happen and th- these attacks have been happening and then we say well, how how can we deal, deal with this trauma and what's the aftermath um, so this is how i would like to 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 think about it is like what can we do as preventative um because these things take longer time like for uh, like to to heal Um, donna it's um my take on it was that uh similar to what Heidi is saying we're we're dealing with a lot of it's multi-faceted multi-layered a lot of things going on simultaneously uh, we want to think holistically. We try to look at things from, from a preventative measure, but we also try to look at things from a standpoint of psychoeducation. Uh, and then we want to look at things. Uh, we, we have to look at this global. This is becoming actually a global mental health epidemic. And I don't know if I, I hope that we're starting to understand that here at home, because unfortunately, we have a lot of experience with these uh, with these mass shootings. And uh, in our case, uh, at, at this particular mosque, we, we've seen it now in a synagogue. Um, that happened the day before we arrived back from New Zealand. We heard the burnings of four uh, African-American churches while we were in New Zealand. And this is just becoming <coughs> a, a systematic dehumanization of, of a specific group of people, of, of minorities. And um, I don't know any other way we can e- explain this, uh, especially when we see that Toddlers were gunned down, mm-hmm. and people are being consistently attacked in their places of worship. So um, it's it's really it's really uh, overwhelming. We're talking about what happened in New Zealand at the Christchurch and the counseling that uh, people are getting in Christchurch these days with Donna Demir, a health advisor at the Zakat Foundation, uh, Hadia Zarzur, a mental health therapist, and Sana Muhayyidin. She is a family counselor and therapist. And I, you know, I, I'm, stri- I'm still, I go back to um, the generosity that people have shown, and people have tried to be so nice. I know that people gave <laughs> millions of dollars into into funds for the people in Christchurch and the mosques, and uh, there's, I noticed, the government um, kind of cleared up any kind of uh, immigrant status problems that mm-hmm. they had. Mm-hmm. They're trying to alleviate problems and try to be nice to them, but yet. Um, on a long-term basis, it's so hard to 
um, lock in trauma care for all these people. The, the it's 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 trauma care, and let me let me just say this. It's and the, the two therapists can speak a little bit more on the trauma care. Uh, it is trauma care, but but based on what we know and what we've been doing for the last twenty years at Zakai Foundation, it's it's so much more than that. When you talk about a recovery process, like you're saying, so much money has been raised. You know, we we really need to emphasize cultural competency because. You know, you if you give someone fifteen thousand dollars and they don't know exactly how to manage this, if they don't have financial literacy, uh, how is that going to work? There needs to be things set in place for vocational training for these women who have been housewives. Uh, I mean, it's it's so much more complicated than just giving money, which is a beautiful thing. You know, we we all need we all need this kind of loving care. Um, but it's so multifaceted, and and they just not have experienced the trauma that we have here in the U.S. when it comes to gun violence. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you're you're saying that um, the people in New Zealand, they uh, they didn't have. They, I mean, they just don't have the volume of counselors or right. people no, who who've ever dealt with yeah, this. Not at all. Yeah. Through no fault of their own. I mean, Sana can attest to that. Hadia can attest to that mm-hmm. with their uh, them being multilingual. It was so important and so necessary. Yeah. I think when when we I met some of the survivors who I spoke Urdu with them, they were just they were so appreciative of that that somebody came from so far away and that could talk to them in their language and understand them on a different level. Definitely, like you said, the New Zealand population is so small, and that there aren't enough mental health therapists in that way to approach people on the level that they need. Not to say that they aren't trying; they yeah, are. They're doing. And their they're best. doing the best they can. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Can you tell me something about the people you did meet? And uh, I, I know that there was a Syrian um, family that I, I, I read about in the paper. It was, you know, horrible. They lost almost everybody but one. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, that that goes. That was um, all over the place. Yeah, that was very heartbreaking, even for me on a, a personal level, um, and um, just to be with her. And I was also like impressed. <sighs> Like by her strength and how she kept saying, we want to go back to the mosque and we want to show uh, the attacker that we're stronger and uh, this is not defeating us. Um, um, yeah, I would say like uh, from from meeting the families there and from my work with refugees, it's amazing how faith um, uh, uh, plays as a protective factor in in uh, such uh, tragic traumas. Um, it's it's um, they keep saying, you know, this happened. It's fate. There is nothing we can do about it. But so we're going to keep going because this is how our our family members uh, want it from us. So so it's it's and I'm not. I don't want to underestimate. You know what's the the, the, what are my concerns about what's going to happen on the long run? That's why we were there, and that's why we're, we're thinking about a long-term plan. But 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 also, you know, having them as a community, um, meeting together, um, and supporting each other uh, is also uh, healing and empowering. Um, so what we try, this is what we call it, like being being creative in the way that we provide services as as, as a mental health therapist. It's not we can't ask people um, who who go through such a trauma to come to us whether. It's to our clinics or offices mm-hmm. or hospitals or schools. Um, I think, and this is reinforcing the same idea of cultural competency trainings, 
I was part of this, those trainings throughout like the city of Chicago, like teaching uh, 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 teachers and, and physicians and social workers how to work with refugees and immigrants. And the idea is what kind of a lang- that language are we using with them? What kind, um, how are we creative about understanding the symptoms and how not to be really traditional, as I said, as the set uh, of uh, thinking of the setting. Mm-hmm. So so that's why the model that we, we've been following and I've been, we've, I've learned this like through my I work with refugees here is, is, is home visits, mm-hmm. being comfortable with going to into someone's home, and that by itself, even at this point where where there's still it's still only eight weeks in uh, uh, after the the, the, the attack, um, uh, the the shock is still or the trauma is still raw. So at this point, just going there, supporting them at at the, at their homes without really um, uh, saying you know like I'm a trauma therapist. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Just mm-hmm. words like this, being creative about what you use. I'm here to support you. How how's your sleep? How how's your appetite? Mm-hmm. Uh, any nightmares? Uh, it's okay to feel anger. This is what you do if your child is feeling angry. How about we play this? How about we punch a pillow? How about we scream in a pillow? How about we go to the beach? So, all of these creative ways of support. So, were the people uh, in Christchurch getting? home visits from people in New Zealand? Were there therapists who were visiting? Um, They're getting home visits from support people, not necessarily therapists, but what they call victim support in New Zealand, which is an organization that is set up to support people through crisis. And so they were making home visits, but it wasn't to address mental health needs, but to address their physical needs or their financial needs and stuff like that. So that was happening. But um, And then also, of course, within the Muslim community there, there are people who are going around visiting all the families and making sure they're okay. Uh, what do you think the long-term prognosis is for a, a community like that? How... how how long – I mean, I keep going back to the Parkland thing, but I, yeah. you know, it just pops up in the news that yeah. you know, years later we're having you know, severe problems. Right. I right. think it's a good idea, yeah, that the therapist can answer that, and then I'll give my take on that <laughs> after they're done. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really hard to say, like to give like an amount of like our period of time. I think what's crucial is always the ongoing support in different ways and meeting uh, those families where they are. And and uh, it's it's something I would say that I, I'm a big advocate of of uh, what's called uh, post traumatic growth. So so usually when people think about trauma, we we think about like post traumatic stress disorder and and of course all of those uh, 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 symptoms that kind of like paralyze uh, person. Life, but also we know that there's something called post-traumatic growth in which people are. We focus on people's strengths and 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 uh, uh, we give them the support so they can go through and learn from their experience. <laughs> I would say, as a Syrian person who who, who didn't really face like war firsthand, I, I still get uh, triggered. There's absolutely uh, t- trauma symptoms that I that I um, uh, suffer from. Like even when I was in New Zealand, I had this um, nightmare about helping uh, that uh, amazing. Uh, man on the wheelchair and, and trying to run away from the shooter and I only heard that story um, um, I, I was I was kind of scared when I was in the mosque thinking about this video that I saw and that the killer was there walking in the same hallway where I walked and I just the idea is it's going to be there. I need to acknowledge it and and I need to be okay with it and try to kind of like use the coping skills that I that I've been uh, learning and and uh, keep moving forward and and so so 
Again, um, 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 I'm just giving myself as an example. So you can imagine people who were there and how horrific that is just to to be there and, and see what happened. Um, but at the same time, I'm hopeful that when, when there is uh, enough support, ongoing support, um, uh, people are resilient. And this is what we need to focus on. Yeah. Sana? Um, I forgot the question. <laughs> you think, uh, you think is, are things going to, how long will it take to, to make things okay and better? Oh, I mean, when we talk about grief as therapists, we say, give yourself two years, right? And that's, and this is grief in circumstances of trauma. So I think that's different. I think it would take even longer. And then if we think about children who've lost their fathers or their mothers or, or wives, young wives that have lost their husbands, that this is going to be, I think, a lifetime of trying to move past this. Um, Donna, do you have some final thoughts? I, I do. You know, I, I think that it's very important for, for all of us to to recognize that this is something that is uh, – it's, it's systemic. This is – I foresee this as a global mental health crisis. Um, and, and the only way that we're going to pull out of this, I think, as as mankind and as as the human race, is is, is if we come together and we acknowledge this uh, this this onslaught of negative propaganda, very similar to to uh, anti-Semitism. This is a cousin to anti-Semitism. That's the way I look at it. And we're going to have to pull together, go within our deep moral self, and and help make each other more human again. We have to see in each other ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and we will always find good people. There will always be good people to kind of help us through this, hold our hand, give us the necessary skill sets to bring us t- together through interaction. We, we need to interact more to eliminate the fear of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is the only way that we're going to do this is if we pull together and put a lot of these other things aside and start to care, respect and love each other again. This is really what we ha- what we need to do, and Sakat um, Foundation wants to be a, a strong part of that. Donna Demir is a health advisor at the Zakat Foundation and a registered nurse. They helped uh, fund the trip to Christchurch. Also with us has been Heidi Azazur, and she is a mental health therapist that specializes in trauma, and Sana Muhyiddin, and she's a family counselor and therapist with Rise Youth Family Services in the Milwaukee area. Thanks a lot for coming down and talking about your uh, experience in Christchurch, New Zealand, and Ramadan Mubarak. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Coming up after the break, India has its highest unemployment rate in 45 years. We'll talk about poverty alleviation strategies in the Indian election. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. India has its highest unemployment rate in 45 years. Rural India continues to be an agrarian crisis where farmer debt causes suicides. We're going to talk about poverty alleviation and the Indian elections with Pranab Bardham. He is a professor emeritus at the Department of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's been uh, writing about poverty and the Indian elections. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hi, thank you. I wonder if you could um, – let's talk about the place this has in 
the Indian elections? Because it seems like, you know, if you, you had the highest unemployment rate in 45 years, that would be the, the thing that would be the biggest issue in the elections. But you wrote recently that the ruling party is counting on supercharged jingoism to see it through in the election campaign. Um, what do you think is happening here? Well, first of all, um, let me qualify the issue of unemployment. I think uh, one should realize that the unemployment, the highest unemployment rate, etc., uh, has to be interpreted somewhat differently in a, in a country like India compared to other countries, compared to, say, the United States, is that in a country where the majority of workers are self-employed, the high unemployment means somewhat different thing. And also in a poor country, nobody can afford to remain unemployed for long. So one should inter- qualify this highest unemployment figure that has been quoted. Because um, uh, sometimes people uh, are, are scrounging around to do something, so they are employed in some technical sense. So the real issue is really low productivity employment. Um, but um, but also, when uh, the survey investigators ask you, are you employed, uh, the more educated, the better off people say, um, no, I'm unemployed. But the poor say, because they're scrounging around, they will say, yes, um, they're employed. So there is a bit of qualification. But having said that, let me say that job situation is really very, very uh, severe in India, not just today, but uh, for some years now. Uh, The difference in today is that this ruling party came to power in 2014. One of the big promises was that they will create a large number of jobs. And that's what they have not failed in. And I think there is an attempt uh, uh, by the ruling party now in this election to divert attention to other issues, uh, including national security, including patriotism and things like that. And that's what I meant by the by the uh, supercharged jingoism. And that particularly refers to an incident um, uh, on the, in the in, uh, vis-a-vis Pakistan. And um, until then, uh, in fact, a lot of discussion, election discussion in India was concentrated on the failure of the current government on the economic front. Uh, and, and the discussion kind of got shifted uh, because of a rather successful PR job done by the uh, ruling party that it's a national security issue. I think national security is an important issue, but they're not discussing it in that uh, in that way. They're discussing essentially a kind of simplistic, jingoistic way. And now, that's what I was referring to. Does the ruling party have any uh, real formula for addressing the agrarian crisis? Because they talk in, um, in ways that say, you know, we're going to double the pay that farmers get um, by such and such a year. But it, I don't know exactly what they have to, to make that happen. I don't think anybody believes uh, in that announcement. Uh, it's, it's just an electoral ploy um, that, that by 2022, that's uh, the date they've mentioned. Uh, um, in fact, uh, 
uh, Indian farmers would be lucky even half of that is achieved. No way of doubling. Um, because at the moment, the growth rate in agricultural income uh, is, is quite low, much lower than even the average uh, growth rate for the economy. Uh, so nobody really believes in it. Uh, at least I don't know of any respectable economist who believes in it. Um, but I think the uh, it's the uh, the way they're trying to handle it. And and by the way, this is also shared by the uh, the opposition party. They're trying to solve this agrarian uh, distress issue it, with kind of temporary SOPs like uh, loan waivers. You know, the government gives lo- the government banks give loans. And uh, in some of the states, since agriculture is a state subject of the province, subject of the province constitutionally, not the uh, not the center. Uh, so some state governments ruled by the, uh, the BJP, the ruling party, uh, they have already done loan waivers, and also the Congress party, the opposite main opposite one one of the main opposition parties have also announced and now implementing in the states where they are the ruling party uh, with loan waivers. And loan waivers uh, are completely the wrong way of going about it, uh, partly because um, most of the poor are not, are not indebted to the banks. They are indebted to the village or the local money lenders. Why? Because they don't have the collaterals which the banks insist on. Yeah. So <laughs> loans are... The public bank loans are usually, most of it, is to the better-off farmers, not the poorest farmers. And secondly, it really completely destroys the banking culture that, you know, uh, the general impression gets around that if you take a loan from the public bank, you don't have to return it, which actually completely decimates uh, the whole banking culture. So uh, I think this is a, this is a quite a, a damaging uh, short-sighted policy that both the opposition and the ruling party have been taking. But, but beyond that, of course, both have now announced a more positive, uh, I, I, I think still defective, positive uh, policies. The ruling party has announced, uh, in response to agricultural distress, uh, policy of income support. All along in India, the main way they were uh, supporting agriculture was uh, minimum prices for the output of the agricultural sector and large subsidies to the input, input meaning like water, like fertilizer, um, electricity, and things like that. So input subsidies plus uh, uh, support price for uh, the agricultural output. Very interesting. Pranab uh, Bardham is Professor Emeritus at the Department of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. We're talking about poverty alleviation and the Indian elections. Coming up in a moment, I'll be talking with Gail Smith. She's the head of the One Campaign, and we'll talk about uh, foreign aid and the Trump administration. Stay tuned. Um, You know, I wanted to say something about uh, the Congress Party and their proposal for a form of basic income in India for the poor. And this is... And this is kind of a bold thing to do, but they say they're going to offer basic income to the lowest 20% of the population. Uh, how, how do you think that'll fly? Uh, I think that uh, income support is better than price support or, or loan waivers. 
But uh, there are problems with the way they are announcing it. Uh, by the way, uh, compared to the ruling party's proposal of farm income support, this is better because this is not just farmers. Uh, it's If you are an urban poor uh, and, and belonging to the t- lowest 20%, you will get that too. So it's kind of... It's uh, the all India rather than just the rural sector, the, the Congress Party's proposal. But there are problems. Um, I mean, uh, of course, at election time, uh, nobody discusses how that uh, those proposals are going to be funded. I think it is possible to fund, but they haven't discussed much. They will, they will find out some way. They've, in fact, announced that there will be a committee who's be formed with, uh, who... Uh, who is going to suggest how it's going to be funded. But there are other problems, like how do you find out who belongs to that bottom 20%? You, you mentioned uh, the, the informal economy before, and this and yes. this plays yes. in here. Who is economy, nobody knows, not even the income recipient knows what their income is. Uh, there is no accounting, there is no, uh, much of the income is, uh, is um, not, uh, n- not registered anywhere. So, uh, secondly, there's a lot of corruption involved. So, essentially, you do it roundabout ways, who belongs to the bottom 20%, and if you need somebody's certificate, somebody to certify, some administrator to certify that you belong to the bottom, um, there are lots of problems of corruption. In fact, there is evidence. Already, uh, India has many programs, targeted programs, for the below the poverty line. It's called BPL. So if you are below the poverty line, you get a card. So you have to show the BPL card to get the targeted benefit. And already um, there's data that half of the, of the poor do not have that card, and one-third of the non-poor have the card. <laughs> so that tells you how enormous that problem is. And now, and that's below the poverty line, just one line, and now twenty bottom 20% is even more difficult. Well. You know, how does it how does this work with voters? I mean, if voters see all this and they say, "Well, the ruling party hasn't done so great," and but the Congress party, I mean, Prime Minister Modi comes out and says, "Well, Congress party had seventy years to fix the economy and they they didn't alleviate poverty. Um, you should give us another term." It, uh, voters, it looks like they'll probably give Modi another shot. They may, but uh, that's. Uh, um, uh, I think voters are disappointed about the job situation. Uh, voters are disappointed about uh, the the agricultural distress because it's not the case that in Congress Party's uh, rule for all these decades, uh, poverty has not gone down. Poverty has gone down significantly. In fact, the largest rate of decline in poverty in India happened in the first decade of this century when most of it Congress was in power. So I don't think this this Modi's propaganda that nothing has happened in the uh, in the previous uh, six seven decades uh, that's not true, but poverty has not gone down at a sufficiently high rate. Um, in, so that 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 is what uh, people are worried about. But also within the po- among the poor is the agricultural sector. There are a lot of structural problems, which is related, by the way, to the job problem. Why are the poor people in rural in India are so poor? Because productivity is relatively low, uh, and, and in fact, in trying to, and this is true of all governments, 
and I already told you that it's supporting the product price and uh, and giving input subsidies. Those input subsidies, which again go largely to the better off, instead, if they were put into agricultural investment or rural infrastructure, irrigation, roads, things like that, I think the rural situation would have been better. And secondly, the reason it's linked with the jobs situation is that people are trapped there. Uh, the numbers are half of India's workers are in the rural sector, uh, uh, in the agricultural sector, and the agriculture sector generates only about 15% of total income. So that tells you how low productivity is there. Uh, half of the workers are there, but they're producing only 15% of total uh, gross domestic product. Well, uh, well, we'll keep our eye on the Indian elections and see what happens with poverty alleviation. Thanks a lot for joining us. Pranab Barnum is a professor emeritus at the Department of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's been writing about uh, the poverty situation and the Indian elections. Thanks a lot for joining us. Welcome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the Trump administration and foreign aid. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. AIDS kills around 2,500 people every day around the world. The U.S. has long been the biggest funder of the U.N. Global Fund to Fight AIDS. The Trump administration has proposed budget cuts to the U.S. foreign aid budget. Let's talk about it with Gail Smith. She's president and CEO of the One Campaign. It fights extreme poverty and preventable diseases, particularly in Africa. And Gail was the U.S. AID administration administrator in the Obama administration. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Um, could you explain what's going on with uh, the Trump administration and the foreign aid budget? What, what's happening here? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. The, you know, the way a budget is built in the United States is the president submits it and Congress ultimately decides what's in and what's out. And pretty consistently, this administration has proposed foreign aid budgets with radical cuts, 35, 36 percent. I mean, big, big glaring cuts. What's happened consistently, and all signs indicate it's going to happen again, is that the Congress, and interestingly, in a bipartisan fashion in both houses, tends to restore aid levels uh, to a kind of flatline to where they've been. So we see Republicans and Democrats joining forces on the Hill to make sure we're maintaining a robust aid budget. Why do you think the administration does this, I will call it a nutty thing, by, by, by kind of like lowering aid to people with AIDS? I mean, they fill out a form and they say, well, the, the people with AIDS, let's give them a third less. Well, you know, I think there's still a narrative out there that aid doesn't work. Uh, and I think we got lots of evidence to show that it does. Because if you look at the stat you cited at the opening here, we have cut in half globally the number of people who die from HIV AIDS every day. So that's progress. And we know that it can actually work very effectively. Some people say, why are we helping people outside when we should be working here at home. Well, AIDS is also a challenge here at home. Let's not forget that. But the reason is safety, security, prosperity, and opportunity elsewhere are things that benefit us here. 
I think this is an administration that has tended to look inward, uh, that doesn't buy the argument that this is a good investment. And I think they may not grasp one of the most important things is that, you know, you can support foreign aid because you think it's economically smart, because you think it protects our security, or you think it's a values thing. That, you know, when we're out there, when people know that the United States is taking the lead in the fight against AIDS, that's a good thing, but that's also good for us. And I don't think they grasp that yet. And the fight against AIDS was led by President Bush. This was one of it his was. this was his signature program, PEPFAR. PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief. And boy, when he announced it, when he announced a big mission, and at that time people still were not really talking about AIDS in a big way. And it was a lot of taboo and fear and so on. And he announced billions of dollars. And it was really, really bold, but it was bold enough to change the global dynamic. I was thrilled as part of the Obama administration that one of the things President Obama told us to do when we proposed to him early in 2009 that we increase funding for HIV and AIDS, he said, absolutely, yes. Let's keep on going and win this fight, but give George Bush credit. And I think that that culture of this isn't about Republicans or Democrats, this is about the United States leading, is one that's thankfully persisted. But we got to keep working it because we're not out of the woods yet on ending this epidemic. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of encouraging research that says people who are getting treated mm -hmm. you know, do not transmit and we could, you know, potentially end this thing. If we could treat everybody, we exactly. would stop transmitting. Exactly. And this has been the extraordinary thing through the life of this epidemic so far. We keep getting new science, new facts, lower cost for testing, things that allow us to accelerate the fight. Our challenge now, though, even with that piece of really, really good news, is to keep up the fight. This is not the time to pause because with a virus – so long as we're moving faster than it is, we can win. But if it's moving faster than we are, we're going to lose. So to keep pace, catch up, and outpace the AIDS virus, we've got to be maintaining robust U.S. leadership and fully fund multilateral and national efforts to, to end the epidemic and use all the science like that that we've got. It's really exciting. I'm talking with Gail Smith. She's president and CEO of the One Campaign. It fights extreme poverty and preventable disease. And she was a USAID administrator in the Obama administration. Um, tell me what's going on with the One Campaign. What are you guys doing these days? I mean, people may remember the One <clears throat> Campaign as being something that uh, Bono and Bobby Schreiter, Bono and Bar Bobby Schreiter, uh, founded. Uh, in, you know, 20 years ago or so. 15. 15? This is our 15th anniversary. We're still going strong. Uh, we're in nine countries around the world. We're building out in Africa. We've got a, an extraordinary cadre of African advocates making the case to their own governments that they need to do all the right things to end poverty and preventable disease. This is a big year. There are a lot of resources on the table and a lot of policy on the table. So this is a year every three years there's a big funding drive for the multilateral AIDS effort. So this is – that's happening this year in France in October. So a huge push because with all the progress, think of this one stat. 1,000 young women and girls are still infected with HIV every day. Now, we know how to overcome that and we've got to go ahead and do it. AIDS is still a crisis. We've made huge progress, but it's a crisis of now. So that's big, getting a budget in Europe, making sure we're fully funded in the U.S. It's a really, really busy year for us. 
Um, what what is going on with uh, the European funders? Do they fund at the same level? Do they have the same level of enthusiasm as they used to? They do, but you know what's what's interesting, and the reason the fight is ever more important is that we're seeing a lot of countries turn more inward. Right now, for example, the European Union is in the process of negotiating its budget, and it's for seven years. That's the biggest contribution worldwide to this effort. So we're working actively on that. We've got signs they'll go the right direction. But again, you got to stay on it because you look at the change we're seeing in Europe. In the UK, which has historically been quite a leader on development, uh, we think they'll stay committed to the original big promises they made some years ago. But you can imagine that with Brexit and there's now a kind of anti-aid sentiment cropping up. Uh, so we've got to make sure we keep that alive and that people all over Europe and the United States understand that they're doing really good things with these resources. Uh, I guess you, you're seeing the populist revolt all mm-hmm. over the world affect the budgets uh, for right. for the things that, that you care about, at poverty alleviation and all, right. all the rest. We're seeing the signs that that could be where we go in the future. The flip side of that coin, though, is that we continue to get evidence that ultimately, if we can get to them, uh, if we can help direct them towards actions that actually matter, I still think there are more people who believe in the world we want to build where there isn't extreme poverty, where we're fighting all poverty, where preventable diseases are prevented. So the challenge is to get to them and also to get to them kind of regardless of where they come from politically, which is an extra added challenge right now. But again, one of the things I marvel at is that in a time of partisanship and division, this is one area where people continue to work together. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> we hear about like anti-vaxxer situations right. and things like that. I, there, there's like a, a different healthcare thing going on these days that, that does reflect populism and that is um, – is kind of rebellious against uh, all, all of us do this together. I, I think there is a rebellion and I think there's a trend that a lot of people have talked about where facts matter perhaps less than they did. I mean I was raised – I'm sure you were raised – like we took science as a really good subject and the science says that vaccines actually work and we know from all over the world that they do and we're seeing the evidence here with measles outbreaks that if you don't vaccinate – you have a problem. I think you're absolutely right that there is a rebellion. I think part of the challenge for all of us who believe in a world where we've got to work together and that fairness has got to be a big piece of the future, I think part of the challenge is how do you get to people who are rebelling because the status quo isn't satisfying, but invite them and encourage them to go into a direction that isn't kind of rebellion for rebellion's sake or against science or against fact but is a kind of rebellion that says this isn't good enough. we got to do better in a more constructive way. It's hard. It's hard. But I believe we've got to do that uh, because otherwise we're just going to be divided. It's going to be every man for himself. And I think what we want to see is a world where we invest in our common humanity because that's what's going to benefit all of us. Is there a good story you can tell about the work that the One Campaign's been doing with HIV/AIDS, where you know, in country X, it really is working out? Well, I was just in Senegal, uh, in West Africa, uh, in fact, with Bono, 
And we went to a center run by what's called the Global Fund, which is the big multilateral organization that drives a lot of worldwide AIDS efforts in addition to PEPFAR. Senegal is a country where their AIDS level has fallen really, really low. I mean, it's remarkable. They have done an extraordinary job. However, among really poor, disenfranchised people, particularly in urban settings, young people, they've got a persistent problem. Now, that's a persistent problem we have in Washington, D.C. I imagine you have in Chicago. The good story is that that government, the Global Fund, and citizens haven't given up. They've said this is the hardest bit and we've got to get to this. So we sat with 100 young people and there were some older people there. And it's not usual that you sit in front of guests and people you don't know and talk about sexual activity or whether you've been tested for being HIV positive. They talked about it. They're there to talk about it and mentor their friends about testing, about treatment, about prevention. So I think there's a great story there in two things. Here's a country that has succeeded in maintaining a really, really low infection rate, but is doing what we all need to do, which is taking on those persistent pieces of the epidemic, because we know if we don't defeat it resoundingly, it will win. And it's happening out there. We're working at it. But this is not the moment to slow down. Do you feel like you're kind of in the business, though, where you've got to fight the, 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 the intellectual fight here with the, with the United States in such a strange place I, that I, you I, cannot get the attention, the air is out of the room, the mo- momentum for multilateralism is, uh, is diffused? It, it is. It's harder, I think, than it's ever been. And it's hard, and you know this from the work that you do, there's so many stories every day that it's a crowded field to – to get in and, and talk about this. Um, so I think that the challenge for us and the way we handle that, how do you get people's imagination? How do you capture their imagination? We do a lot that's a bit edgy. We do a lot with pop culture, some ways to kind of surprise people, and that tends uh, – again, that tends to work. But we also do a lot of work outside cities. We've got people all over this country, for example, working in communities. And again, it's harder maybe in a national debate – on the ground, people people care about it. Gail Smith is president and CEO of the One Campaign. It fights extreme poverty and preventable disease, particularly in Africa. Gail was a uh, USAID administrator in the Obama administration. Great to meet you. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the 25th anniversary of the Tibetan Alliance in Chicago. Hope you can join us. Worldview was produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.